Hello, you're listening to the extended version of Book Shambles because you're a Patreon supporter and that makes you better than everyone else and you deserve treats. Thanks very much for the support. Here it is. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. I believe at the end of last week's episode, I said our guest this week would be Jim Al-Khalili. Well, I lied. Jim's going to be on in a couple of weeks. This week, it's Helen Chesky in the host chair once again. And she is talking to Lindsay Fitzharris, who you might have heard on a Book Shambles Extra many moons ago. Uh, or caught her at one of the gigs we did in Northampton with Robin and Alan Moore. Around the time her first book, The Butchering Art, came out, which was one of our books of the year uh, in the year it came out, actually. She joins us today to talk about her new book, The Facemaker. Before we get to that, thanks as always to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to sign up, subscribe, support the podcast and get lots of extra goodies. Last week we put up a half-hour film that we shot with Robin while he was briefly back in the UK, mainly um, to drop off all the books he bought in the first leg of his uh, tour around the world with Brian Cox. That film is Robin going through pretty much all the books he bought on that first leg and then picking out a top 10. That's available to all Patreon supporters now, plus lots of other stuff, of course. Don't forget to rate, like, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. Five stars on Apple Podcasts, if you please. That would be absolutely lovely. And also to let you know, on next week's episode, Josie's back. She will be talking to Alan Lane and Ollie DeRose about their new books. But for now, here is today's episode. Here is Helen and Lindsay. Welcome to Book Shambles. I'm Helen Cheresky. And today we are going to be discussing a topic which I have to say is possibly not for the very squeamish. Uh, And you will see why. (laughs) So uh, I'm going to be talking to Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris, who is uh, a fabulous author. She's got a PhD in, in the history of science and medicine from Oxford. And what she does now is write about the horrible history of medicine which is fairly <laughs> horrible I have to say it is I have very rarely read anything on the history of course it's uplifting in a general sense but the details are often quite horrid but very necessary so she she writes on this for all sorts of people um, and presents on it uh, for the Smithsonian Channel and others and uh, we're going to be talking about her new book which is called The Facemaker um, which is a brilliant title. I love that. And uh, it's all about the, the early history of plastic surgery. Um, so f- bef- to get so, so welcome to Book Shambles, Lindsay. Just to Thank get started, um, on the, you know, is just to give us a, a bit of warning on the squeamish, it's not too, we, we can, we're going to talk about this without scaring anyone too much, right? No. But there are some squeamish bits. <laughs> I mean, hopefully not. I think for me, you know, my first book, The Butchering Art, which was about Victorian surgery, was really gory. And I actually had four men faint while I was on book tour giving talks about this book. I think it was a, it, it's sort of the imagination, you know, putting yourself on that operating table without anesthesia that really kind of got under people's skin. Um, this book, in contrast, I feel is more harrowing. Um, because, you know, you're talking about soldiers, some of them are boys even, who are being sent out into these trenches without very little gear. They don't know what they're getting into. And they're, they're 
getting these facial wounds. And before the war was over, 280,000 men from France, Britain, and Germany alone would suffer some form of facial trauma. So the scale of this is immense. And so it, it opens up this, this opportunity for uh, surgeons like Harold Gillies, who my book is about, to, to start to develop plastic surgery and facial reconstruction. I think, I mean, it's what's interesting about the topic, really, before we go on to the, the details, is that, I mean, as you describe, these were humans who were trying really to help other humans, right? There was this enormous sense of purpose in helping these other humans. But the only reason those other humans were in trouble was because of other humans who had done it to them. I mean, it's yeah. this very difficult sort of dynamic, isn't it? Where you're like, this is the best and the worst of humanity all in one place. Yeah, absolutely. And there was a surgeon who said at the end of the war that men who save life never get the same appreciation and reward as those whose business it is to destroy it. And I think that that's why I hope the face maker will sort of fill in for that gap and, and to give these stories life. Because often we do talk about the military history, we talk about the generals, we talk about the war itself, but not about the bodily harm that it creates on bodies. You know, we're seeing the return of old school warfare in Ukraine at the moment, and it's on everybody. Mind. So I think The Facemaker is a timely book, even though it's about something that happened very long ago. I do. I, I think that is very true. And I also I noticed it. So I um, when I cycle to work, I cycle past the London monument, you know, the, the war yeah. memorial. And it says something like the glorious dead. And every time I see it, there is, like, there is nothing glorious about dying in war. It is miserable no. and horrible and painful. And, you know, and it's there is this sort of sugarcoating. Of what oh, happens. absolutely. I mean, even even the face maker, you know, I think a lot of readers are going to gravitate towards this positive message that all of these wonderful medical inventions came out of it. You know, you have the birth of facial reconstruction and plastic surgery. You have the emergence of blood banking. So the first blood banks appear in empty shell cases near the front. You have uh, the development of intratracheal anesthesia. But all of these things, as wonderful as they are and certainly have served us long after the guns fell silent, they also prolonged the war because as doctors and nurses got better at patching these men up, they were then being sent back to the front and it was a vicious cycle. And I think that's really important also to acknowledge. Yes, some of these good advances came out of it, but they also, it was a double-edged sword, certainly. Well, we should set the scene here a little bit. So this is this is the First World War and people had tried plastic surgery a little bit, little bits you talk about before, but basically this is the first massive opportunity if you want to put it that way when there were so many injuries and a lot of them were facial and so just on on the thing about facial injuries it's, it's interesting isn't it because um so much of medicine that we talk about is focused on keeping the plumbing going basically you know hearts and yeah blood circulation systems and making sure your liver's doing and the face is really interesting because it's it's so much more than just another yes. organ of the body, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I often say that this was a time when losing a limb made you a hero, but losing a face made you a monster to a society that was largely intolerant of facial differences. And even Gillies himself, who is rebuilding these soldiers' faces, is arguably a product of those facial biases of the time because he's going far beyond just restoring function. Obviously, a patient has to be able to swallow, to be able to eat, to speak, but Gillies is going far beyond that so that the 
face is deemed socially acceptable by the standards of its day. And these men, you know, they, it was a very isolating experience. Sometimes they were forced to sit on brightly painted blue benches so that the public knew not to look at them. Um, and there are stories of some of these soldiers who went back to work and they were forced to, to work at the back of the shop so that they wouldn't frighten the customers. So it was isolating. And so what Gillies was able to do was not just mend their faces, but also their spirits. And how, so look, we should we should do a little bit of introduction to Harold Gillis himself, because it is, I mean, it's always the case that stories, you tell a story through one person, that, that's the way stories work, right? But it does seem yes. as though he genuinely, he, he genuinely was a pioneer, he was kind of the right guy in the right place. Just give us a little bit of background on him. Yeah, I mean, and, and you're you're absolutely right. I mean, there and also I should say that there were other surgeons working on facial reconstruction at this time. Um, there was a surgeon named Jacques Joseph in Germany who was doing some fantastic work. But what made Harold Gillies different was that he worked in a very collaborative way. So he brought artists on board. He brought um, dental surgeons, which a lot of times other surgeons wouldn't work with dentists. They considered it an inferior profession. So he's working in collaboration with lots of people to establish a hospital dedicated entirely to facial reconstruction. He's New Zealand born, but Cambridge educated. Uh, he was an ENT surgeon when he headed off to France with the Red Cross. And he came across this character named Charles Valadier, who's one of my favorite characters in the book. He's this French American dentist, and he retrofits his Rolls Royce with a dental chair, and he literally drives it to the front under a hail of bullets. I mean, this guy is a legend. <laughs> he works for free for the entire war. And he's really the one to show Harold Gillies this desperate need for facial reconstruction. And that's really what sparks Gillies' interest in this field. Um, and, and eventually Gillies returns to Britain and he opens a specialty unit first at the Cambridge Military Hospital in Aldershot and then later, as I said, establishes an entire hospital in Sidcup. And um, so we should sort of set out the what was known before and after, I guess, because uh, before before you have this massive number of cases, then, you know, people, surgery is still in a in the sense of having anesthetics and being organized and professionalized it's still quite a new thing isn't it yeah i mean it's it hasn't basically anesthesia hasn't advanced since 1846 when ether was discovered so you're talking about you know a rag with chloroform over the face or you're talking about a rudimentary mask with ether and when you think about someone's face being destroyed and when you see the photos in this book you will understand that was really challenging because to put a mask over someone's face where there is so much damage could be very painful the other issue was there is a scene in the face maker where Gillies is leaning over a patient and the patient is breathing ether back into Gillies' face and he's getting very sleepy. So this is obviously not an ideal situation for your facial reconstructive surgeon to start getting sleepy in the operating theater. So you see the developments in anesthesia happen in parallel with the development of facial reconstruction. So it's kind of like the B story to Gillies' A story, to borrow a, a movie term. And at the end of the war, one of his anesthetists uh, develops intratracheal anesthesia. But you're, that anesthesia wasn't really a specific subspecialty of medicine. Anybody really was given rag and chloroform and they were administering this stuff. And it could be dangerous. These drugs in large doses could definitely kill a patient as well. And you've got to admire, I mean, I, in, in many ways, Gillis was in a very difficult position in the sense that he had some skills he had this enormous task and this enormous responsibility and really he was totally working it out as he went along i mean yeah. he had a he had a lot of experiments in a way which sounds like a very inhuman it's, it's you know it's it's a, it's dehumanizing slightly but effectively 
he has to try it and see if it works. Yeah, I and mean, then try something else. You're and you're right. And and also, obviously, experiments in medicine continue. We don't like to think of, of ourselves as being sort of subjects of experiments. But a lot of people ask me, is this book about the guinea pig club? Because they're quite famous in World War II. The burned pilots um, became known as the guinea pig club. They were operated on by a surgeon named Archibald McIndoe, and he was actually Gilly's cousin. And it was Gilly's who introduced McIndoe to the strange new art of plastic surgery. And the guinea pig club becomes very famous. So this is kind of the prequel to the guinea pig club. But yeah, Gillies, he, he had no textbooks really to guide him. Plastic surgery did predate World War I. Um, in fact, the term plastic surgery was coined in 1798. At the time, plastic meant something that you could shape or mold. So in this instance, a person's soft tissue or skin. Uh, but attempts at, at altering a person's appearance in earlier periods tended to focus on very small areas of the face, such as the ears or the nose. Um, there were a lot of diseases in the past, like syphilis, that created uh, deformities of the nose, for instance. So there was a, you know, sort of a demand for, for rhinoplasty in that sense. But it was always risky because this is before antibiotics. It's before, um, well, in, in earlier periods, it was before anesthesia. So you really don't get wholesale attempts at restructuring the face, except a little bit in the Civil War in America in the mid-19th century, but even then, fewer than 40 plastic operations had taken place by the end of the war. So compare that to the 280,000 men requiring some kind of facial reconstruction in World War I, and you can understand why suddenly plastic surgery enters this new modern era. And how how is it to look back at the 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 question of disfigurement or, or the, whatever phrase you use, because it is still the case, I think, that whatever um, whatever your ideological view on this is, that most humans, if you show them a face which is not not what they expect, mm-hmm. they, they don't necessarily react well to it, right? It's a very, humans yeah. find that it, there's an innately frightening thing about it. And, and yes, we're perhaps moving on in terms of acceptance yeah but so how 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 does the modern view of of a face compare with was it difficult to look back and read much more raw responses to to faces which were not as people expected yeah and you know i i don't know if it's if it's like an inborn fear but it's, it's certainly the facial biases even today um go back hundreds of years where disfigurement was associated with disease such as syphilis as i said um, which was a social disease, which was there was a moral kind of judgment that came along with getting a disease like syphilis. Also, there were certain crimes that came with purpose, purposeful disfigurement. So if you committed a certain crime, they might cut off your nose. So all of that is ingrained in our conscience. And going forward, even into today, that is a way that we that Hollywood lazily signals evilness. I mean, think about how many villains are disfigured in movies, right? You have Darth the Vader. Joker. Yeah, the Joker. Yeah. Uh, Harvey Two-Face, by the way, becomes evil once he's disfigured. You have uh, Voldemort. You have um, Dr. Poison. Uh, there's a ton of Bond villains who are disfigured. It's actually really problematic, and the disability community is is really fighting that. 
Um, and so that's people don't understand why they would respond that way. Oh, right. OK, that means that guy's evil. But it does go back, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of years with this idea and this association of disfigurement with certain kinds of diseases and certain kinds of criminality. Um, and I hope that these things continue to be challenged. And even with the face maker, you know, these men are the heroes of their own story and they do have damaged faces from the war. Um, and a lot of people also will know, uh, for instance, these World War I masks that I talk about in the book, uh, these tin masks. You might know it through the fictional character Richard Harrow in Boardwalk Empire. So there is some of this in popular culture today. And how, I mean... Um... It's interesting. Yeah, well, there's a whole there's a whole thing. And I'm interested in, in the advice you got from the, the disability rights activist um, on how to deal with this, because these are these are, issues, you know, obviously these are there are large social aspects to this that change over time. Did What was their perspective on the story and, and the way you told it? Yeah, I mean, this was a really interesting um, exercise that I really encourage a lot of writers to go through. And my friend uh, Lucy Coleman Talbot actually encouraged me to do this when I was early in the writing process. Um, now, I have to say that the disability community isn't homogenous. So anything that Ariel Henley told me are her personal opinions, but she is reflecting, you know, general sensitivity uh, views held by the disability community. For instance, Ariel has a, a condition called Cruzon syndrome. So she calls herself disfigured. And again, some people might not choose to call themselves. They might use the term facial difference today. Um, so not everybody agrees on this. She really loved reading this story, she told me, because it um, it taught her about uh, the history of a surgery that she herself had undergone. And also she felt that the relationship between Gillies and his patients was captured really well the way that she feels about her doctors. Because over the long term, these facial reconstructions, they could take years, you know, sometimes even over a decade to complete. And so you really have a very personal relationship with your doctor in a way that you wouldn't, for instance, if you were just dealing with the trauma surgeon at the front. So she seemed to really enjoy those aspects. We talked about you know, I think the hardest part to navigate were some of the historical quotes because there was a lot of ableism and a lot of um, prejudice against these these men. Um, but again, you know, they they have to be in the book because we need to understand the world that these men were living in and trying to navigate with these kinds of injuries. And it's also, of course, it's not just people looking at them; it's them looking at themselves. You know, in a way. Oh yeah. The, some of the most powerful sort of stories in the book are about people looking in the mirror, you know, and yes. thinking they would not be able to look in the mirror and see what they thought of. Yeah, the, you know, of course, because, you know, these these person. men also had those facial biases, right? You know, so the, in, in, when they got to Gillies Hospital, mirrors were banned, and that was really to discourage them from getting um, frustrated with the process. Again, this can take months, it could take years, sometimes over a decade. So sometimes your face could look worse before it looks better as you're going through that process, and Gillies didn't want them to get discouraged. But also, so in a way, it inadvertently taught these men that they had faces that weren't worth looking at or that these were faces that they shouldn't want to look at. And some of these men really internalized that, that kind of hatred of themselves. And there was a story of a man named Corporal X. We don't actually know his name. It comes from the records of a nurse that was working at the hospital. And when he comes in, he's heavily bandaged and he's, he's joking, he's, he's talking with everybody and he's saying that he can't wait to see his fiancee, Molly, um, but he needs to get these beastly 
completely bandages off so that he doesn't frighten her. Well, eventually the bandages are removed, and it turns out that he had smuggled a shaving mirror into the hospital, and he had seen his face. And the next day, the nurse saw that he was really despondent and depressed, and she kind of nudged him and said, well, why don't you ask Molly to come visit you? And he said that he would never see Molly again, that he had written her and said that he had met a woman in France, um, and he wanted to, quote, you know, spare her um, from being attached to him. So it was really... So he'd made up a story, basically. Exactly. He lied, and, and, it, and, it, and it was said that he kind of went on to live a very isolated life. So there were definitely men who couldn't accept that change. And, of course, the other aspect of this is that you're going from sort of a typical face very dramatically to a you know heavily damaged or disfigured face at this time so that that change could be very psychologically shocking the good thing was that all of these men who ended up in gilly's care they were all disfigured so there wasn't as much self-consciousness of your wounds as if you were just ended up at a hospital a general hospital where maybe not everybody had a disfigurement um so i think that actually allowed the men to kind of come out of their shells nobody felt necessarily shy or you know having to hide their wounds so there was a real psychological benefit just beyond what Gillies was doing surgically, just being at the hospital with other men who had similar injuries. And one of the things that is always striking, I mean, you know, if you read the statistics of the Somme, I think the statistic is that 60 uh, percent you know of the the soldiers on the first day were killed or wounded, which is just crazy. It's, you know, the things that humans are capable of doing are continually shocking the fact that that's just a number and yet it's just the fact you know it's sort of yeah powerful it's great that it, in a way not it's not great but it's it's powerful that it's a number but it's also horrific that it's mm. just a number yes but anyway but a lot of these were very they were boys I mean they were very very young yeah a lot um, of them were I mean that was you know I read one account where it said that uh, a boy had gone to to serve I mean he must have been 17 or 18 he was very young and they asked him whether he wanted to serve for a year or until the war was over and he thought well I don't want to be in the army for a year so I will sign up till the war is over because everybody assumed that the war would be over very quickly so you know the these men they didn't really know what was facing them in the first year um they didn't even have helmets a lot of them didn't have helmets eventually that kind of I found that was one of the most shocking things like the idea that you would send men out to face guns and bullets and you don't even give them a tin hat. No, I like, know. It was crazy. It took a while for that to be developed. And it was the first headgear that had been given out to all soldiers, regardless of rank. Eventually, when that, that Tommy hat, uh, which you see behind me here, is an, is an original one. I know everybody listening can't see it. But, you know, the original Tommy hat with that brim. But even that wasn't, you know, it didn't give you that much protection. And a lot of these men, they didn't understand the nature of trench warfare. I mean, in a company in 1914, a company of just 300 men in 1914 could deploy equivalent firepower as a 60,000 strong army during the Napoleonic Wars. The advances in weaponry and artillery at this time were astonishing. In fact, there was the invention of the flamethrower. You have the invention of tanks, which left their crews susceptible to new kinds of injuries. And of course, you had the appearance of chemical weapons. So men were maimed, they were burned, they were gassed. Some were even kicked in the face by horses. So there were so many kinds of new injuries um, and it was really hard at first for the medical community to keep up on top of all of this. And you do describe that in the book that, the, you know, when things would change, I think the Battle of Jutland, you know, there's another there's another way of damaging people. So you need another load of new techniques 
Yes, that to deal with it. I mean, and, and also the Battle of Jutland, that was such an interesting scene because I thought I need to anchor this on something really normal. And so I came across this record of this baker who was making these loaves of bread when this battle all commenced. And and it was just such a kind of a, a strange normality in the midst of this battle. But you're right. Um, there were cordite burns, which were sort of flash burns that any anything that was exposed, suddenly your skin was was burned. So usually the face and the hands. Um, and there was a lot of trial and error. A lot of times trauma surgeons near the front or right in the midst of the battle would do more damage than good. Sometimes they literally sealed up a soldier's fate when they would try to stop the hemorrhaging. They would sew up the wounds so fast that they didn't clean them out properly. So by the time they get to Gillies, you know, you have a mass infection raging. And again, this is before antibiotics, so it could be quite dangerous. So there was a lot of trial and error, especially in those early days. But it is extraordinary how fast the medical community did catch up. The chain of evacuation, just getting off the field was hard because these stretcher bearers became targets themselves. You know, so they're making instant decisions about who lives and who dies. And if you, anybody who's had a facial wound and even a minor cut, well, no, it bleeds and it bleeds and it bleeds. It's very vascular. And so when that happens, it could be very ghastly and it looks like you can't survive. And when you, again, pick up this book and you see the photos of these men, you can completely understand why a stretcher bearer might say, let's leave him behind. He's not going to survive. So there is a man named Walter Ashworth who injured on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, and he is left there for three days. He falls forward, and that's important because a lot of times these men fell backwards or they were put onto their backs by well-meaning medics, and in doing so, they ended up drowning in their own blood or their tongues would slip back into the back of their throat. So he falls forwards, but nobody takes him off the field for three days, and it's just atrocious. There are there are so many things in this book that are just atrocious not the book itself but the <laughs> things in it uh, and and how many of the you know when it comes to the progression of plastic so in a way when we hear the phrase plastic surgery now we think about cosmetic plastic surgery you know people who perhaps think their nose needs a bit of a tweak or you know yeah. some something which is egotistical basically you know it's it's a it's it's not a, it's not a survival thing, but often no one else thinks there's anything right wrong. You know. Yeah, I mean, so pla- so plastic surgery. If you picture plastic surgery as like a heading, you still have reconstructive surgery under that, and you also have cosmetic surgery. So there are a lot of surgeons that still do very important reconstructive work for people who've been injured or they have uh, congenital defects. So that's all still going on, and some plastic surgeons do both cosmetic and reconstructive surgery. Um, but you're right that cosmetic surgery is sort of eclipsed and overshadowed the reconstructive work. Now, when the war is over, Gillies continues to work on these men because the war is not over for them. Um, but he has to make a living, and he and plastic surgery is not yet a subspecialty of medicine, so he does start moving into the cosmetic realm. He's excited by it. He says that reconstructive work is about returning something to normal, his word, um, but that cosmetic surgery is about surpassing the normal. And so he's he does like those challenges, and he he feels that people have a right to uh, control their identity in the way that they want. In fact, he performs the first ever phalloplasty on a trans man in 1949 named Michael Dillon, which is incredible. Should perhaps explain that phrase. Okay, so <laughs> a phalloplasty is the construction of a penis. 
Michael Dillon came to him uh, wanting this operation. It had never been done on a trans man before. At that point, uh, Gillies was well-placed to do this because he had been working through World War II. He had been working on soldiers who needed genital reconstruction because they had been injured. So he took on the case. Eventually, uh, Michael Dillon was outed by the British press, and he was driven from the country. And uh, Gillies stood by him. What year was this? What's the time period? So the phalloplasty was completed in 1949, so much earlier than people think. And um, when when Michael Dillon was outed by the press and driven from the country, Gillies stood by him. And I said in the book that there weren't a lot of people who would have viewed Michael Dillon as a man in 1949, but Harold Gillies wasn't one of them. He was very forward thinking. He liked a surgical challenge. Certainly the phalloplasty presented the surgical challenge, but he there was there was a very human side to him that he felt that people should be allowed to uh, control their identity, whether it was through reconstructive work, whether, whether it was through cosmetic work. Um, he supported all of those avenues. Hello, sorry to disturb the conversation. Just to say, you are listening to the abridged version of Josie and Robin's book shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version, then you can support us via Patreon and get all of the other bits of tittle-tattle that dropped out of our mouth. And how much, you know, just in the in the big picture of, of from the point perhaps around 1900 where very little of this has been done to, to today, so, you know, 120 years-ish, um, the big, by the end of the First World War, you know, Gillis, and, you know, having shared what he knew, how, how far along the path, to, was that a big chunk of the way to today or, or was that sort of just a little bit and there's been huge development since then? Oh, that's a good question. I haven't been asked that. You know, it's it's always developing, right? I mean, even, I, I can't even imagine the kinds of amazing things they can do for patients, especially in the reconstructive realm. In the epilogue, I do touch on face transplants. So I always feel if Gillies lived today, he would be really interested in this new technology. Face transplants kind of sit on the border of both reconstructive surgery as well as transplant surgery. And they're not considered life-saving because the patient actually has to take so many anti-rejection drugs that it shortens their life. But it is certainly life-transforming for these patients that do undergo face transplants. So the leaps and bounds that have been made, I would say, are huge since Gillies died. But... um, Certainly, a lot of his techniques, I still have plastic surgeons that come to me that they still use some of these techniques. His forceps are still used in the operating theater. And his principles of plastic surgery are still very much at the forefront of plastic surgeons' minds. So some of his principles, for instance, is um, never do today what you could put off to tomorrow. And I talk a little bit about that in the book because he lost a patient um, because he he sort of rushed the surgery. So there a lot of these tenants, these principles still continue to guide surgeons today. I was a few years ago, um, I, I was pitching a program to the BBC about the face. Actually, in, in my case, it was because, um, so I am, I'm not a makeup person. When I started doing TV, I was given the makeup lesson and what they did was this this very helpful lady did up exactly half my face, kind of split oh, it down the middle yeah. and she did one half. And then I was supposed to copy <laughs> and do the other half. And I never took a picture of that intermediate stage. And I always wished I had, because that is a, that's an amazing thing. If you want to see the importance of the faces, you see oh, yeah. what people, you know, the sort of optical illusions and you can talk about the biology. Anyway, so the, this program pitch was on that. And I think the BBC said, well, we'll only do it if we can finish with a face transplant. Uh, okay. And I was 
quite glad that they couldn't get that to work because it because it was too visceral <laughs> i mean it would be it's it's hard too because like obviously putting something like that on tv now it's getting more i thought it was very invasive yes i thought it was yeah. ethically wrong to do i mean there might be patients that would be willing to talk about it but and some of them there was a very famous photo that came out uh in the last couple years and i i describe it in the book and the surgeons had uh had dissected the face off the donor and it was sitting on the operating table and they're all standing around it this face sort of between lives and it looks like a halloween mask it looks like a rubber mask it's a very odd photo um but extraordinary and you can see the surgeons understanding the implications of what they're about to do as well um but you know it's it's it is fascinating but i think in that instance, it could be exploiting the voyeuristic tendencies we have around faces, you know, and that's always been my concern with the face maker, that the stories of these soldiers is always at the front, that their voices are at the front. And yes, I do think we should look at their photos because I don't want to put them on the metaphorical blue bench in 2022, but I want to do it in a sensitive way. So it's not just like, look at these, these, you know, faces that underwent this kind of damage in this period. So it's a fine line, you know, you don't want to hide it because that's what's creating the facial bias, but you also want to be respective of the people who work in these these fields as well as their patients. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's hard to cover something like that, certainly. Actually, interestingly, the Cleveland Clinic, which is the lead hospital in the world for face transplants, was founded by surgeons in World War One. So there's all kinds of links that, that go right back to World War One. Well, I think, I mean, I think with these things, in some senses, with the, those difficult ethical issues, there's no right answer, but you have to try. Yes. And it gets used where it's appropriate and you help it moves the conversation, you hope it moves the conversation forward. And I think you have been very brave with this in a very good way, because it's so easy, especially in a sort of very polarized society today when people wag fingers and shout at people on social media. You know, yeah. it's very easy if someone thinks you've got something wrong, they there can be quite a lot of aggression. Yeah, you know, and and I probably did get things wrong. You know, maybe people are going to disagree with with some of the choices I've made in this. Uh, you know, all you can do is is have a dialogue with with people who are actually affected, you know, by by the prejudices that still exist today, and hope that you presented it. For me, it's always context. The the more context you can give, the better. Like I said, bring out the voices of these of these men, bring out their stories. There was a a game that some people might be familiar with called Bioshock. It was in, it was it created years ago and they the creator uh used gilly's patients images to create the monsters or the zombies or i i've never played this game so it was it to me as a medical historian that's a horrible thing um i i think you know these patients could never have imagined that the photos that that were being taken in 1915 could be used in such a way um, it also kind of just adds to the othering of, of them as, as people. But there are other people who say that they think that it was a good thing because they had never come across Gillies and his work until they had played Bioshock. So there's a lot of debate to be had about this. Um, I, I definitely, you know, am open to that, but hopefully no shouting on Twitter. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here. Um, well, because one, one of the other things I think that just almost going back a little bit is that is the uh, the thing that makes this possible all of it the only reason any of this is at all possible is that the human body is very adapt it's it's not very fussy in some ways right you know you can yeah. take a bit of skin off somewhere and stick it on someone else you can take a bit of somebody else's yeah. skin off somewhere and if if you know some things line up you can yeah. stick it on someone else and it's it is 
given how complicated the human body is it's sort of astonishing that that's because if you couldn't do that yes none of none of this would be yeah so i mean gillies uses flaps and grafts so a skin graft is kind of like um the salami of of plastic surgery it's thin and it's removed entirely <laughs> i wish i hadn't i'm a vegetarian but i, I like a vegetarian but i wish i had never heard you yeah say it's it's on. the salami and so you it's it's totally detached and moved to another area whereas a flap is like the steak it's like a meteor piece of tissue and the reason why you would need a flap for instance to um reconstruct the nose if the nose is completely gone is because you're going to need a lot more tissue than just skin uh, so a graft is not going to really do it one of the oldest procedures, rhinoplasty in medical history, that what you do is you take a flap from the forehead. So if you take a piece of string from the tip of your nose to the top of your forehead, you will find that the length of your nose is the same length roughly as your forehead. So moving the flap down from the forehead over the damaged nose will help you reconstruct the nose pretty well. And we still use this technique today. And that what's left over, you would think, oh, well, there's like this huge hole in your forehead, but actually the skin on your face is quite stretchy, according to a plastic surgeon I talked to. So they can just kind of stretch the skin over the area where the flap was taken. But the flap remains attached to its blood supply. So when you are reconstructing large areas, mostly Gillies used flaps, remember the stakes of plastic surgery. And and one of his inventions was something called the tubed pedicle. So what would happen is if you were moving a flap, uh, typically it remained open on the backside. So all of the, the underneath was open and, and it can get infected. So what he did was he rolled it into a tube. So everything was, was basically encapsulated by skin. And then he was able, if, if you could picture like almost like a trunk of tissue, he could move it around the body. So he could attach it to one area, he could sever it at its original uh, base and then move it again. And so you'd have like these waltzing tubed pedicles all over the body. And he did extraordinary things. He was able to rebuild entire faces. And um, like I said, in, in, in the spirits of these men, certainly as well through these kinds of adaptive techniques. And, you know, there are, there are so many, I, I imagine that Obviously, you, you had to do more, far more research than went into the book. Um, did you, was there anything that was too uncomfortable to include or that was too sort of, you know, uh, that... Too much I for don't the... Know. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and I, what I do as a narrative nonfiction writer, so for people who aren't familiar with narrative nonfiction, it reads like a novel. It's all 100% true. Um, what I do is get rid of stuff. You know, I don't want the reader to be overwhelmed by too much background, for instance, about World War One or two. So I'm, I'm hoping that I give enough background information that you feel comfortable, that you can fall into the story, but you're not overwhelmed. So it's not like a history, a typical history textbook, certainly. So if you're afraid of history out there, this is, this is okay. You can kind of gently ease yourself into it. I also think that people who don't like history might like medical history because we all know what it's like to be sick and I think it's very relatable in that sense there was nothing um that I I kept out because I felt that it was too difficult for the reader I don't pull punches anybody who read the butchering art will know this um I think that I would be doing these patients and these soldiers a disservice if I wasn't explaining exactly what that experience was like like I said it opens in 1917 in the trenches with Percy Clare getting shot and you see everything you smell everything you know the dead bodies that that became structural fixtures of the of the trenches even I mean it was gruesome it was horrible they they used to say that you could smell the 
front before you could see it. So you can imagine what this experience was like. So I don't pull punches because I want people to really feel like they're there and to understand and to empathize with what these men went through. Well, I think, I mean, we're, we're out of time, which is a shame because there is there is a huge amount to talk about, but everyone should read the book um, because I, I, I think also it, it's, it presents, because it's uncomfortable, actually, because it presents questions, both about what humans do to other humans in good ways and in bad ways. And uh, a lot of things that we take for granted obviously come from experiences everyone wishes hadn't happened yes you know yeah i think it's redemptive you know it, it, it's harrowing but there's redemption at the end and like i said i think it's important that we remember the realities of war especially as we see the return of old school warfare in europe right now well actually i mean i was going to finish but i have to say one of the things that really struck me is your description at the start and it is you know it's not a history textbook but you do describe the sleepwalking into world war one yes oh, gosh, uh, yeah. i had to a, give people know, a little bit of, of a background series because of little accidents yeah i mean I, I didn't again when i started this book i thought what i must have been insane to take the subject on because i'm an early modernist by training i'd never gone really into the 20th century and so my starting point was why did world war one start <laughs> which by the way historians are kind of still arguing about even today, but there are a series of ridiculous things that happen. Um, and the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand was such a bizarre situation because what happened was um, there was uh, along the parade route, there were several assassins. One of them originally uh, threw a grenade. The grenade was batted off the, the Archduke's car, exploded behind him. The Archduke's car speeds off. And then later they go back on the same. I know. It, it's like, actually it's insane. It's 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 as if um, JFK they that Oswald missed him and then they brought him back around for like another go. go. Yeah, they go back on the on the parade route and then someone points out that they're going the wrong way. The car stalls and it happens to stall in front of the man who does then end up killing the Archduke. And interestingly, he also had tuberculosis, the the assassin, and he dies just a few days before the end of the of the First World War, so the war that he helped instigate. So, it is a really bizarre uh, state of affairs about why this this even happens in the first place. And it's so sad when you think about the consequences for so many people in, at that time. But I think it's important, especially at the moment, because, you know, uh, my Second World, history, Second World War history is generally better than my first because of my own family history. But um, it's people always, there's always this assumption of, well, oh, if we had been there, we wouldn't have let it happen. You know, there's this kind yeah, of no. like, feeling that, <laughs> and you're like, no, 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 no one thought this was going to happen. Yeah, I mean, people, people love to, you know, in retrospect, you look back and you say, well, that's crazy, and we wouldn't have acted that way. But, you know, we see this kind of behavior repeated over and over again, and the, and the sort of, you know, everybody's sort of sliding into tribalism and, and the things that cause these wars in the first place. And, I mean, the, the, the thing that hopefully we have going today is that we have a better understanding of the consequences, the terrible consequences of these war, but even so, that's not stopping, you know, warfare around the world. So I hope that people pick up the face maker and remember not just the men who fought in World War One, but also the people who are fighting today. Um, well, perhaps if we learn our history, we will not be doomed to repeat it. Uh, we have to finish. We are out of time. Uh, it's it's a shame. But thank you so much, Lindsay. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. I, I highly recommend uh, The Facemaker by Lindsay Fitzharris. And, you know, if you're a shambles listener out there, do subscribe to us on Patreon, Patreon if you can. There's loads of stuff happening on the website. Live events are getting going again, especially over the summer. So have a look at all of that. And that's all. So thank you very much. Thank Goodbye. you. 
Thank you very much for listening. Lindsay's book is out now. Helen's book is out now. as well. Both Helen's books are out now, as they have been for a while. Signed copies on the Cosmic Shambles bookshop. Lindsay's book available wherever good books are sold. As I mentioned, back next week with a new episode. Josie is back next week. Patreon.com slash bookshambles to support the show and get extra goodies. Until then, take care, stay safe, look after each other, and bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.